Man, there's so much rich theology in that song. Praise God for the Gettys and their faithfulness. All right, well, we are going to be continuing on in our solace. I should be on, Joseph. you got to unmute me. Um, we've been going through the, the five solas, and while they were really only birthed out of the 16th century, they are truly definitional to our faith, truly definitional to what we believe. And they kind of act as a shorthand for an orthodox uh, doctrinal statement, a, a small kind of catechism. Hopefully you guys who are regulars here have read through our doctrinal statement and agree with our doctrinal statement and understand that it really outlines what we believe. Well, the solas do the, the same thing on a, a grander level. They outline for orthodox Christianity what it is that we stand on, what are the, the foundational principles of our faith. And you may have thought as we've gone through this series that these five solas, sola just means alone, kind of sounds contradictory. How do you have five things that are alone? How do you have five alones? How can you have Christ alone yet have grace alone yet have faith alone? That doesn't really make sense for them to be alone. Well, let me assure you they are not contradictory, but in fact, these five solas are interconnected. We need to remember that as we go throughout this series that we are getting ready to wrap up, that you can't just take one sola by itself and isolate it by itself, but they are really tied together. They are interdependent upon each other, interconnected. Um, And um, you have these these solas. The first sola, which is formulated around sola scriptura, that is the foundation of the solas. We go to scripture as our sole infallible authority. And it's capstoned by the last sola, sola deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. But in the middle of those, we have really these three solas that are centered around the gospel. We are and should be all about the gospel, not just at this church, but as the church of Christ. We should be about the gospel. And really, those solas speak to the gospel that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. That is what we are all about. Um, that is why why we are here um, for the glory of God. That is why we are all here on earth, not just Christians, but everybody. We are here for the glory of God. Everything that we do, we in Him, we live and move and have our being because we are in, we are created in His image. But as the church, we are here in this building because of the gospel. That should be our drive. That should be our focus because of the gospel of Christ. Um, these, these solas really came to a head, like I said, in the 16th century because that gospel was under attack. That gospel was being trampled underfoot. People were saying that you could earn your way to heaven, that you could in fact buy people out of hell and put them in right standing with God and that was in direct opposition to the gospel. And that's why this whole teaching came about. Sola fide, the fact that salvation, justification is by faith alone, is what gave rise to the Reformation, what started off this whole understanding of the five solas. And went on to um, grace alone. That We have to have faith in the fact that Christ has given us his grace and solus Christus, Christ alone, 
truly is the linchpin for the five solas. If we don't have Christ, we don't have anything. Christ is the one who has given us scripture. We have scripture alone because Christ has given it to us. He is the one who has authored this book. He is the one who has spoken these words into existence. It is the grace of Christ alone by which we are saved. It is his grace. He is the one who provided that and made the means of salvation available to us, who offered, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, that propitiation, that satisfactory payment to the Father so that grace could even be offered to us. Again, he is the author and perfecter of our faith. It's not just faith that saves us, but faith in Christ. Christ must be the object of our faith. It is possible to have faith without justification. You can have faith in Allah. You could have faith in a man. You could have faith in a false god, but it is impossible to have justification without faith. We have to remember, however, that Christ is the object of that faith. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 said that if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. That if it's not about Christ, then, then what are we doing here? We're just wasting our time. Christ is the linchpin of the soul is he is a linchpin of our faith he is a linchpin of the gospels <clears throat> and it is his desire to glorify god not just the father but himself also as he is god in john 17 he says to the father in his high priestly prayer father glorify your son so that the son may glorify the father it's all about glorifying god that's what these solas are all about. That's what the gospel is about, to bring glory to God. So let's remember that as we continue and, and look at this sola this morning of sola, solas Christus, Christ alone, that these solas are in fact interdependent. They are interconnected. And we're going to get in and we're going to look at uh, this teaching of sola, solas Christus. Let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you yet again for your word that we have an infallible authority on which we can stand, that we don't have to act ourselves as arbiters of truth, that we don't have to try to determine what is right, what is wrong, but you have told us. God, we thank you for what we've already learned, that salvation is by grace alone and faith alone. God, help us to understand the the importance of the fact that it must be in Christ alone. God, I pray that as we, we strive to, to focus and uh, try to put out of our minds the, the fact that it is hot in here, uh, help us to consider others who struggle through much more to just have a chance to sit under the, the teaching of your word, to have a chance to hear from, from God. God, I pray that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit, in your Holy Scripture. Help us to have a, a better understanding of you, a better appreciation of the fact that we are saved in Christ alone. pray this in your name. Amen. Before we can really get into this teaching of Christ alone, I think we need to first have a, a solid understanding of God. We need to go back. We need to understand who God is before we can understand Christ alone. So I want to go back to the beginning. I want to go back to the very beginning in Genesis. In Genesis 1.1 should be up on your screen. The first four letters we find in our Bible. In the beginning, God. It's 
pretty simple, right? In the beginning, God. God was there in the beginning. And we call that his aseity. That should be in your notes. If you want to take down and, and jot down what aseity means, aseity speaks to the self-existence of God. That God exists in and of himself. He doesn't get his, his source of power from anybody else. He wasn't created by anybody else. He didn't have a mom or a dad. There was no God before him, no God after him. He is the first and the last. He is from everlasting to everlasting. And we see this truth about God even in his, his unique name, in his covenant name, Yahweh, that he is self-existent. Remember in Exodus when Moses sees God in the burning of the bush, God reveals himself as the great I am. Moses said, who are you? And God said, I am that I am. Not I was, not I will be, but he is. He has his existence in and of himself, not dependent upon anybody else. Uh, there is no such thing as an, an infinite regression of gods that just goes back and back into eternity. There is one God who is Yahweh. That is his name. And he isn't subject to the laws of nature. He isn't subject to reason or logic. In fact, those things flow out of him. He is the first. And those things, logic and, and what we would call the, the laws of nature, come from God. He isn't bound by those things. And we have to remember that before we can get a, a full grasp of the fact that salvation is by Christ alone. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. Everything comes from God. God is eternal. Matter is not eternal, but again, matter flows out of God. God created those things. He made those things by the very breath of his mouth. He didn't have to work hard. He didn't have to strive to, to create matter. He didn't have to work with what was already there, but he created just by speaking into existence. In the beginning, God, our God, our Yahweh, the self-existent one, created the heavens and the earth. He is eternal. Let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 40. It says, talking of God, it says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighted the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? God is not limited to, to measure out the creation that we look at and, and we can't even fathom how big that is. And he has created it by the breath of his mouth. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? The obvious answer, nobody. He doesn't answer to anybody. Nobody was teaching God how to create. Nobody was counseling or advising him. He alone is God. With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him in the way of understanding? Nobody taught our God. He alone is God. That is speaking of his aseity. Nobody taught him. Nobody commanded him. Nobody counseled with him. And in fact, it says in that last verse, verse 14, who taught him in the path of justice? Nobody had to teach our God how to be just. Nobody had to teach our God how to be fair. Nobody had to teach him how to be good or holy or righteous. He is absolutely holy. He is the standard of perfection in and of himself. In Hebrews chapter 6, God is making a promise. And in this promise, he pledges to keep his vow by swearing by himself. So it would be customary 
customarily people would swear by somebody who is, is better than themselves, somebody who's greater than themselves. But it says here in verse 13 that when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Again, he is the standard of goodness. He is a standard of perfection. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. On the first day, he spoke just a word and he created light. And he separated the light from the darkness and he called it good. The next day, he created water and he separated the waters above from the waters below and he called it good. On the third day, he gathered the waters together so that dry land could appear. And on that land, he created vegetation, plants and flowers and grass, yielding seed after its kind. And he called it good. And in fact, he created those plants before he created the sun. He created the light before he created the sun. He didn't create the sun until day four. On day four, he created the sun and the moon and the stars. And he called them good. In day five, he created the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the animals that walk on the ground. And he looked at his creation and he said, that's good. And then our perfect God, who answers to nobody, saw fit to, to give us humankind a representative in Adam. He appointed a representative for us, uh, our federal head, Adam. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, forming him from the dust of the ground. And he was innocent. And seeing that he didn't have a, a mate that was suitable for him, he took from his rib and he made Eve. And at the end of that day, day six, he said, this is very good. And yet, Adam fell. Adam, our representative, our federal head, the one who comes to represent all of humanity before God, he fell in sin. He didn't measure up. He was not good enough. Rather than immediately striking Adam down, as God was fully justified in doing, he showed him mercy. And God allowed Adam to, to draw breath after sinning against God. God allowed him to take another step after transgressing against the holy, perfect God of the universe who had created him out of the breath of his mouth and take another step after that and another step. And that night, the very night that for the first time sin entered into the human race, Adam went to sleep. And he got up the next day, waking up a, a sinful man. And he wasn't dead. God granted him grace in allowing him to live. And he lived another day and another day. And for 930 years, Adam lived because God was merciful. Because God was withholding his wrath and his judgment. God was gracious to him. But at the end of 930 years, Adam died because he sinned. And remember, he is our federal head. He is our representative. And Romans 5.12 says that just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, death spread to all men because all have sinned. Because he was our representative, we are in him. We inherit that sin. We inherit that death that Adam deserved for his sin. We are not sinners because we sin, but we're we sin because we're sinners. That is who we are by nature. We are sinners. And that is why we sin, because we have inherited that from our federal head, from our representative. But like Adam, God grants each one of us common grace in allowing us to live and allowing us to, to 
draw breath. Again, in him we live and move and have our being graciously. That's not something that we deserve. He allows us to experience love and, and joy and, and marriage and all these good things that we don't deserve. But he shows us his common grace in allowing us to live. But like Adam, one day we will die because we are sinners. And again, death entered the world through sin. The issue is we as, as humankind, we as humanity, we need a new head. We need a new representative, one who isn't fallen, one who is not sinful, but without sin. One who is good and holy and absolutely perfect. One who is like God. The only problem is there's none like God. He alone is good. He alone is perfect. And yet in Genesis 3.15, mere verses after reading about Adam's fall and the fall of mankind, we read of a promise of a deliverer of a promise of a redeemer. And our deliverer, our redeemer, our Messiah, our Christ is named Jesus. That is who we have salvation. And Jesus is our good news. Jesus is our gospel. The gospel is centered around what Christ has done. The gospel is centered around what Christ has done, but Christ was only able to do what he did because of who he is. The gospel centered around what Christ has done, but he's only able to do what he did because of who he is. And so in looking at who Christ is, just like we did with God, we need to go back to the beginning. So look with me. It should be up on your screen again. John chapter 1, which says, In the beginning, and if if you had just read Genesis 1-1 like we just did, or if you were a Jewish man who had memorized the whole Torah, you might expect the next word to be God. In the beginning, God. But it's not. It says, in the beginning was the word. We're in John 1-1, Joseph. John 1-1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That is speaking of Jesus. He was with God, yet he was God. Jumping down to verse 14 It says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has exegeted him. He has made him understandable to us. Jesus is God. He took on flesh, verse 14, and became a man just like we are. And he has explained the Father. We know the Father because of Jesus. Jesus is the exact representation of God. Jesus is God. And we have to understand that. That is foundational to solus Christus, that Jesus is God. Now, this passage really is central to this big theological term, what theologians call the hypostatic union. Now, don't run away and and just tune out because you heard a a big 10-letter word. That's a a word that we really need to understand as Christians, a hypostatic union. And while it's a big word, it has a a simple definition. Um, It's the perfect union of Christ, of Jesus' human nature and his divine nature. The perfect union of Jesus' human nature and his divine nature. So big word, 
simple definition, impossible to fully apprehend and to understand, right? We can, we can kind of comprehend that, that concept, but to fully apprehend that is impossible, that Jesus is fully divine yet fully human. In taking on human flesh, he loses none of his deity, yet he truly and completely embraces humanity. He is 100% God and 100% man. That is the, the teaching of the hypostatic union. And that is why we, we see the need for, we see the need for that hypostatic union in looking to Adam uh, with a proper understanding of God's nature, that God is good, that God is perfect, that he is just and fair, and yet he has taken, he is established as our representative, a fallen man, a man who became fallen. And before we start to think, well, Maybe somebody else wouldn't have sinned. Maybe somebody else wouldn't have fallen. We need to understand that he was established in that position by this perfect, just God. And I have no doubt in my mind that you or I or anybody else who would have been in that position would have fallen just the same, if not quicker or more harshly than Adam did. Because our representative, our federal head, was appointed by a perfect God. God is the one who gave us the very best representative that we could have as humanity. And he wasn't good enough. He fell short. He sinned. He was not good enough to, to be on par with God's glory, to be on par with God's expectations. And so we need God himself to step in for us, to act as our representative, to act as our head. But not only do we need God to do that, we still need a man to be able to do that. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to be in Hebrews uh, for most of the, the morning this morning. And we're just going to do kind of a, a survey of the book of Hebrews. So we'll be there a lot. But turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2 and read with me in verse 9. It says, But we do see him, that is Jesus, who was made a little, for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He was made lower than the angels. He became a man. I don't know if you realize this, but on a, a scale of glory, we are lower than the angels. And Jesus took that upon himself. Even though, as we'll learn here shortly, he is superior to angels. He made himself lower than the angels. Read with me in verses 14 through 18 about the reason why Christ must have taken on humanity, human flesh. 14 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, we're the children who share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to the angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation or satisfactory payment for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So we see, again, a need for Christ to be God our Redeemer, to be God. Yet also, he had to be a man. 100% God, 100% human. Again, that's called the hypostatic union. 
That's a big word, but we need to embrace that. That's a, a beautiful truth that we find in Scripture. Now, again, we need a new head. Not only do we need a new head, we need a new covenant, a new high priest, a new and better sacrifice. And we find all of those things in Christ, in Jesus. Now, of the, the 27 books that we have in our New Testament, the only one that we don't know the human author of is the one that I think best explains and describes why it is Christ alone who offers us salvation, why we need to look to him and him alone for salvation. So again, we're going to be doing a, a brief survey of the book of Hebrews. We're just going to fly through really and look at uh, highlights of the first seven chapters of Hebrews and see how Christ is who he is, who it is that Christ is in his person, and what it is that he has done for us to secure salvation for us. So we need to understand before we even jump in that Hebrews was written to a, a Jewish audience, hence the name Hebrews, right? Because it's written to a bunch of Hebrews. And it was written to a, a mixed audience that the author was writing to believers who had embraced Christ and had submitted themselves to him, called him Lord and King, yet they're kind of holding on to some aspects, some facets of Judaism that are still kind of dragging them down, kind of like we've talked about in in Acts, or like we saw back in Galatians. And yet, there are also others who the author is addressing who haven't yet embraced Christ. They know about him on an intellectual level, but they haven't submitted to him. They don't call him Lord. They don't call him King. And so this author is writing to a mixed audience in this book, and the whole purpose of this book, which is penned by the Holy Spirit, is to point out the fact that Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. So all these things that these believers might be holding on to, might have, you know, brought with them from Judaism, they're not sufficient. The author says that they're just mere shadows. They're just types of Christ. And in fact, Jesus is better than all these things. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Abraham, who is the founder of the Hebrew faith, of the Jewish religion. Jesus is better than Moses, better than Joshua. Jesus is better than the priests, than the Aaronic priesthood, the Melchizedekian priesthood, which are really the epitome of the, the Jewish office that could be held. That is the highest office in the mind of a Jew that could be held. And Jesus is superior. And so we need to keep that in mind as we go through this, that the author is trying to tell the recipients of this letter, yes, you have all this stuff, all this baggage that maybe is, is messing you up theologically. Recognize, you can put all that aside. That is unimportant. Jesus is better. Jesus has offered this new covenant, and we need to submit ourselves to him. So starting off in, in Hebrews chapter 1, realizing that there are many who claim that Jesus isn't God. We've already kind of started to establish that, that Jesus is God, but some have denied that. Even in our day today, people want to deny that Jesus is God, and they'll say, well, he's some kind of lesser God. Maybe he was acting on behalf of God. Well, look with me in Hebrews 1. Right off the bat, the author wants to lay down the fact. In verse 2, says, In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So when we looked at God creating the world by the breath of his mouth, that was done by Jesus. Jesus is our creator. Verse 3 and he, that is the Son, is the radiance of his glory, the Father's glory, and the exact representation of his nature. 
So if the fact that he was the creator didn't get you, if the fact that he's the radiance of his glory didn't get you, he is the exact representation of the nature of the Father. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is absolutely God. And we need to realize that. We need to submit to that and, and recognize that he is no less than the Father. Again, many people want to claim he's not God. He's just an angel, right? That's what uh, Jehovah's Witnesses will say, that he is Michael the Archangel. Let's keep reading and see how the text of Scripture, the authoritative word of the Bible, matches up with that. Look at verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? The answer, none. He never said that to an angel. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Not to one of the angels did he ever say that. Verse 8 says, But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The father here is calling the son God. And he says that his throne is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is a scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God... Your God has anointed you, Jesus, with the oil of gladness above your companions. And get this, verse 10. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. Who laid the foundation of the earth? The Lord, Jesus, in this passage. And the heavens are the work of your hands, Jesus. Jesus is God. It is undeniable. He is not just an angel. He's not some kind of lesser deity, but he is God. And he made no mistake about this when he was teaching himself. You think back to Mark chapter 2, when this man was lowered before Jesus, this lame man, and Jesus looked at this man, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. And the people around him just kind of looked around. And they said, what did he just say? Who, who is this guy that thinks that he can come and just forgive sins? That's blasphemous. They didn't actually say that out loud. They were just thinking that in their hearts. But Jesus being aware of what was going on inside of them, because again, he is God, he spoke to that and he said, well, is it easier to say to a man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? And because he is God, he told that man, get up and walk, to prove the fact that he is God, to prove his deity to these people who were questioning whether or not he had the authority to forgive sins. But, and they were exactly right in saying that only God has the authority to forgive sins. Isaiah 43, 25 says that nobody can forgive sins except for God alone. And yet Jesus forgave this man's sins. When Jesus later calls himself the son of God, the Jews picked up stones to stone him because they understood what he was saying. They understood that he, they said, being a man, was making himself out to be equal with God. Well, yes, he was. That's exactly what he was trying to convey. And so instead of us trying to place our understanding on the text, we need to look back at the first century people who were there and see, well, how did they understand Jesus when he made the claim to be the son of God? They understood that he was saying he was equal with God, which is ex exactly what he was trying to convey and exactly what he did convey because he is God. We need to realize that and recognize that because if we don't, we can't understand why it is that Jesus is our only way of salvation. Jesus didn't just make claim to, to deity himself in John chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. 
Jesus says, if I testify about myself, then my testimony isn't true. But there is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. And then he goes on to talk about the, in that chapter, John chapter 5, is the five witnesses of Christ. So he gives testimony to himself. But then he says, I have other testimony as well. He says, you remember John the Baptist, the forerunner? He testifies about me. He has come to, to tell people all about me. And in fact, it's not just the testimony of John. He says, I have a testimony that is greater than John, that in verse 36, he says, but the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John for the works that the Father has sent me to do, the very works which I am doing, testify about me that the Father has sent me. So we can look back at the, the man who was healed in that same kind of concept. Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say pick up your mat and walk? Well, Jesus did both, right? He told the man to get up and walk, verifying the fact that he is God. It's not just John that testifies of him. It's not just his, his works, but the Father himself testifies about Jesus, that he is God, right? He says, listen to my beloved son, whom I well pleased. And the scriptures testify about Christ. In verse 39, Jesus talking to the Jews, he says, well, you think that in the scriptures you find life. So you go and you search through the scriptures, but it's the scriptures that testify about me. I'm the one who brings life. I am the life, right? The resurrection and the life is what Jesus says. So Jesus is God. He's not just laying his own testimony, his own claim to deity, but he is verifiably God by these different works, by his works, by the scripture, by the Father, by John the Baptist. He is God. He is superior to the angels. Jesus is superior to Moses. He is better than Moses. Turn with me back to Hebrews. So chapter 1, he's superior to angels. Chapter 2, we saw the need for Jesus to be a man. We need a representative who can relate and identify with our humanity. And then in chapter 3, we see that Jesus is better than Moses. It's Moses who talked with God face to face. It's Moses who performed miracles, who led his people out of slavery from Egypt through the Dead Sea. This Moses who was really exalted in Jewish history, who acted as their mediator and the author of Hebrews comes along and says, nope, you don't need him. Jesus is better. Not that there isn't a place for Moses, not that there isn't a place for angels, but they're all pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. And in chapter 3, verse 2, it says that he was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in his house. So, that is, Jesus was faithful to God who appointed Jesus, as Moses was faithful in his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. By just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Jesus is superior to this great Jewish hero of the faith. Chapter 4, carrying on. After identifying Jesus as being superior to Moses, the author goes and explains how after Moses the hope of the people fell to a different man, fell to the man Joshua. They were looking at Joshua and they were thinking, well, maybe he'll give us some peace. Maybe he'll give us some rest and we won't fight. We won't have war. But chapter four talks about how Jesus is superior to Joshua and that he actually provided a Sabbath for us, for his people. He provided rest 
that rest didn't come through Joshua. That rest came through Jesus. He is superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He is superior to Joshua. And now read with me in verses 12 and 13. And as we're doing that, these verses are quite fitting with sola scriptura, that it is our sole infallible authority. And it's also highlighting our depravity as mankind, that we fall short. So keep those things in mind as we read verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's the word of God. And while that's pretty cool, that's kind of scary. That it pierces and it judges and it knows us. Even more scary, verse 13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Wow, that's, that's talking about us. We are laid bare before the Lord. The scripture pierces to the division of soul and marrow, um, or soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And then, while that might cause concern, while that might be something that, that worries us, that we are laid bare before the Lord by his holy word, it goes on in verse 14, and it talks about our great high priest. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. So right when we might be worried and thinking, oh man, I am, I'm laid bare. The, the word is being poured out upon me. Like we talked about with Luther, he read Romans 1.17 that it's from faith to faith, that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And he was terrified by that word, by that that verse that said, God's righteousness is revealed, thinking, man, I am so sinful, I am so ungodly, and his righteousness is being poured out upon me. And yet he realized that God was imparting his righteousness to him. Again, that concept of a trade that God, through Christ, through grace and our faith in him, has taken our sin upon himself, and he has imparted to us his righteousness, his goodness. And that is exactly what the the high priest is doing. That is exactly what Christ is doing when he is acting as our high priest. Let's look back real quick at uh, what it means to be a high priest, what the function and role of a high priest was. We're going to put Leviticus 16.11 up on the screen. And this is talking about the function and role of a high priest in the Old Testament. It says that Aaron, who was the high priest of Israel, shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his household. And he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. Because Aaron, though he was a high priest, was still a sinful man. Let's look at verse 15. It says, Then he, that is Aaron, shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. So after he's cared for his own sins, he cares for the sins of the people. And brings its blood inside of a veil to do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, to sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. And then verse 34 says, Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once a year. And just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did. So Moses went in, or Aaron would go in, the high priest would go in. He would make atonement 
a, a covering for his own sins. And then after that, make atonement for the sins of the people. And he had to do this on an annual basis, on a yearly basis. Jesus is our high priest who is superior to the old priest, to the high priest of the Old Testament because he didn't have to make atonement for his own sin. He had no sin. He was just as we are in every way, yet without sin. And he didn't have to go and make a sacrifice annually, but he made a sacrifice once and for all because his sacrifice was perfect. There was nothing lacking in the sacrifice of Christ. Look with me at verse 5 of chapter 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So there we see kind of a glimpse at next week, right? He wasn't trying to glorify himself. He's all about the glory of the Father. That is why he was there, to glorify God. Sola Deo Gloria. Jump down with me to verse 9. Having been made perfect, he, Jesus, became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Having been made perfect. Now that might be uh, a confusing term because Christ should have already been perfect, right? Jesus is perfect. He was without sin. However, this is speaking to his active righteousness that Jesus, he had to live out a life as a, a human, as a person who can identify with us. And he did so perfectly, keeping the full law, not stumbling at any point. He kept the whole law. He was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. And perfectly fulfilled the law's demands and requirements. And it says, again, that having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal life. What does it mean to obey Christ? And how does that guarantee us eternal life? This is foundational to the whole concept of the Reformation, what they were talking about and debating at the Reformation, the means by which we are justified. That is central to the Reformation. Let me just give you a, a quick little formula. Maybe you think kind of like I do, and this formulaic way of thinking might help understand. The Catholics would say that it is faith plus works that equals justification. Maybe you can grasp that if you have kind of a, a math mind. Faith plus works equals justification. The antinomians, those who say, well, we don't need the law. We can just do whatever we want to do. All we need is faith. They would say that faith equals justification minus works. Faith is equals justification. All you need is faith. No works at all. But biblically, we understand, just as the reformers understand, they were encouraging other people to understand that faith alone equals salvation plus works. That salvation will follow. Uh, Jesus said, every good tree will bear good fruit. Not that we are saved by our good fruit, but the result of justification is that we are made new. We are new creatures in Christ and we will bear good fruit because of our being changed by him. And so that's how we can and should understand verse 9, that having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal life. Verse 10, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you are familiar with the, the priesthood of the Old Testament, in order to be a priest, you had to be a descendant of Levi, right? One of the 12 tribes. Not only Levi, but of Aaron. 
And we know from Jesus' genealogy that he was not a descendant of either Aaron or Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah, right? We sang about that this morning, that it's the, the Lion of Judah who is worthy to open up the scroll. And being that he is a descendant of Judah, not Levi or Aaron, he doesn't get his priesthood through that line, but he gets his priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. Now, after this point, from verses verse 11 through the end of chapter 6, the author kind of takes a break. He pauses from this thought of Melchizedek. He brings up this issue of, of Melchizedek, and he says in verse 11, concerning Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So he says, man, this Melchizedek guy, there's, there's something special there. I want to tell you about him. But you're dull of hearing. You guys don't get it. Remember, he's speaking to a mixed audience, some who have yet to embrace Christ. And so he stops and he goes over the gospel. He says, we need to get back to the elementary things. We need to get back to the milk. You really need to understand who this Christ is. And he gives them the gospel. Um, just kind of a side note, that's kind of my understanding of chapter 6 and this warning passage in chapter 6, that he's speaking that to to those who aren't yet in Christ, that they won't be able to be renewed again to salvation. That's a, a difficult passage for much, for many people. But he jumps right back into this thought of Melchizedek and how Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek up in chapter 7. And I want to look at chapter 7 and verse 11. And this verse says, Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? So he's saying if, if Aaron's priesthood was sufficient, if it was good enough, then why would there be a second priest? Well, Aaron's priesthood wasn't good enough. And so that's why we have the Melchizedekian priesthood. We don't have it. Uh, that's why the Melchizedekian priesthood exists. And that is a, a priesthood that belongs to Christ alone, as we'll see. And I believe that for anybody to claim that for themselves truly is, is blasphemous. That's crossing a line uh, because Jesus alone is our Melchizedekian priest. Look with me at verse 17. It says, For it is attested of him, of Jesus, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. You see that Aaronic priests, they would die and they would be replaced. They would have somebody else who would come in and they would supplant the, the former priest and they would become the high priest. Well, Melchizedek is a, a type, a picture, a shadow of Jesus and that he didn't have beginning, he didn't have an end, just as Jesus doesn't have an end to his priesthood, to his high priesthood, that he is interceding for us continually. He doesn't stop at some point. He doesn't have to, again, go in and offer up a sacrifice year after year. He offered a sacrifice that is once for all sufficient because he is sufficient. In this verse, verse 17, talking about how he is going to be an or, a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This was prophesied back in uh, Psalm 110 saying that there needed to be a better priest. Aaron's priesthood wasn't sufficient, but there was coming one who was greater than Aaron, one who's greater than Moses, one who's greater than the angels, all these things that the author of Hebrews is pulling out saying Jesus is better was prophesied in Psalm 110 and we see here in verse 17 of chapter 7 it was fulfilled in Christ. Now verse 22 says so much more also Jesus has become 
the guarantee of a better covenant. See, the old covenant, it was put in place by God for a purpose, but the purpose wasn't meant to be salvation. We needed a better covenant, just as we needed a better head, as we needed a better representative, a better sacrifice. Jesus ushered in that better covenant. He inaugurated that better covenant through his blood, the perfect blood of Christ, that unlike the blood of of bulls and goats, was able to cover a multitude of sins. It was able to satisfy God. It was able to act as that propitiation, that satisfactory payment, whereas the blood of goats and bulls, it was insufficient. That's not good enough. They had to go in year after year and be re-covered, re-atoned for by the blood of this animal, by the death of this animal. But Christ is a perpetual high priest who offered once and for all a sacrifice for sins. Now listen to these verses. These are some of my favorite verses in the Bible. Verses 23 through 27 are rich, full of theology, talking about our high priest. It says, The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, through Christ alone, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is our great high priest. He is the satisfactory payment. He is that perfect sacrifice. Not only is he that sacrifice offering that that perfect atoning blood for us, he is the one who who gives it, who makes it. Just as we saw a couple weeks ago in Romans 6, that God is both just and the justifier. Jesus is the one offering the sacrifice and yet the sacrifice himself. Jesus is sufficient. And in verse 1 of chapter 8, the author says very clearly, he says, now the main point is this. This is what it's all about. The main point in what has been said is this, that we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high in the heavens. Jesus, after making propitiation, after offering himself as a sacrifice, he took his seat because the work was done. Jesus was on the cross. Before he took his last breath, he breathed out to Telestai. It is finished. It is paid in full. It's, it's done. It's complete. And there's nothing that we can do to add to the sacrifice that Jesus has already made for us. If we try to do that, then we are going to fall short every single time. If we try to do that, in fact, we are blaspheming the God of heaven, saying your sacrifice is not good enough. And I need to step up and I need to add something to it and I need to do this and I need to do that and that's not going to cut it. That's going to land us right in hell. That's going to have eternal consequences because our sacrifice isn't good enough. Our sacrifice is going to taint the perfect sacrifice of our high priest, of our Christ who is the sacrifice that came in and supplanted the the sacrifice, the picture of the Old Testament. Christ alone is able to save. That is a hard saying for many people to to hear and to accept these days. 
we live in a world that is completely different from the world that was around 20 years ago, 10 years, even five years ago. We live in a world with safe places, right? Where, where we need to be careful what we speak so that we don't hurt each other's feelings. Where we need to be accepting and loving and, and tolerant. Not that we shouldn't be those things, but we can't redefine those things to say that there is no truth. We can't redefine those things to say that there isn't one way to heaven. And there are going to be people out there that say, who do you think you are to tell me that my God isn't good enough to get me to heaven? Who do you think you are to tell me that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven? How dare you say that my God is not sufficient to pay for my sins? And we, as his church, we need to stand up and say, well, we're the the church of Christ. We are the light of the world who have been given a, a command to go out and to proclaim the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is the one who said that he is God. Jesus is the one who made claims to deity. He is the one who said, I am the bread of life. He's the one who said that I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. Each time he says, I am, referring back to the fact that he is God. He is that self-existent God who has a satiety. He has life within himself. He didn't get it from anybody else. Jesus is our God. He is the true vine. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And in John 14, 6, he says, I am the truth. I am the life. I am the way. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Jesus and Jesus alone is our way of salvation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's a a message that we as his church need to take and proclaim boldly and proudly, even in a world where it's not popular, even in a world where that's going to get us persecuted or, or canceled, so to speak. We have been given a commission to proclaim that Jesus and Jesus alone is a way of salvation. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your aseity, that you don't rely on any man. You are our God, the one and only from everlasting to everlasting, the first and the last. You took on flesh. You took on our sin. That you are the fulfillment of all those Old Testament pictures that fall short. You are the better Abraham. You are better than, than Moses. You are better than Joshua. God, you are better than Aaron and his priesthood. God, we thank you that you are our God. We pray that you would give us boldness to proclaim that to the world as we go out from here. God, we love you and praise you. Amen.